second day of our speakers, and I want to again thank all those people who volunteered to do this. But as someone just mentioned here as speakers before, you know, this is a deal that I don't want to, I can't hear, I want to see. And uh, each time a speaker comes up here and shares their story, it's a spiritual odyssey is what this thing is named about. So this morning we have uh, our first three of the day, and the first one's going to be Gene. You want to start? I volunteered to do this. My name is Gene. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here this morning sober. I I do have some sort of, of recollection of volunteering, although... I had forgotten that when uh, when John called me a couple months ago to, to tell me when I'd be up here. And usually by the time I get up here, you know, I don't know if you're like me or not, but I think, God, why did I do this to myself again? At least I've gotten beyond the stage. I was just thinking about this. At least I've gotten beyond the stage that I'm not blaming John for doing it to me. I know that I did it. And, and, you know, this morning, again, I was, I was thinking about essentially what I was going to say and, and the fact that, that I really would rather not be doing this. And, and then it struck me, you know, I think probably the prettiest bit of prose in the English language is the preamble to Alcoholics Anonymous. Beautiful, beautiful. I always get tears in my eyes when, it, when it's read a lot of times. And then there it doesn't talk about working the, working the steps or doing things like that. It talks, it talks about what we do. What, what members of Alcoholics Anonymous do is share our experience, strength, and hope. So I'm, glad, I'm always glad to do that. My, my earliest memory, first thing I can remember in my entire life, we lived in Passaic, New Jersey, in a second-story walk-up flat. My dad came home from work one night, walked up the steps, opened the door right into the living room, and there was his mother, my grandmother, and his wife, my mother, standing there. Maybe it's a 12 by 15 room, something like that. And they were standing each at one corner of the room with a string stretched between them. And and supposedly each inch on that string stood for one bad thing that I had done during that day. And, and the expectation, I guess, was, what are you going to do about it? Well, I don't remember what he did about it. I don't have any idea what, what the outcome of that situation was, but, but I've had my antenna up ever since. I, I, I think that that that's uh, was the beginning to my, what amounts to at times, real paranoia. Also, dating back to my childhood, uh, maybe explaining alcoholism. My alcoholism, my mother in later life would always say that she just used to be so worried that I would grow up to hate her because she had to spank me so much when I was a little kid, when I was two, three, four years old. And she thought that I would certainly hate her uh, as time goes on when I grew up. Well, I happened to read an abstract from uh, the Canadian, I read it in the journal of the American Medical Association. It was abstract of the Canadian Medical Association journal. It was a paper 
that said they'd done, somebody had done a study and they'd shown that children who were spanked a lot in early childhood were more likely to grow up to be alcoholics. So there you are. That's, I can blame that on my mother. I think, I don't know whether my dad was an alcoholic or not. He was a heavy drinker. Uh, I know my mother focused on his alcoholism a lot, but I can't, I can't recall that he, from my vantage point, I, I can't see where he had an unmanageable life. He certainly wasn't violent. He never, uh, he swung at me with a slap twice in my life that I can remember, and both times I deserved it. So I, you know, whether he was alcoholic or not, I don't know, but I think that I carried my alcoholism. There's a, a fellow named Jim West used to come to the, who said that he carried his alcoholism to his first effective drink, and, and I think that was true with me. Whenever it was, 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, when I had that first drink, probably stolen out of his, my dad's liquor supply, which I used to do a lot, and had the effect from that drink that, that my alcoholism was right there. Because I drank uh, from early on as much as I could, as often as I could, within the parameters of life, you know, within the parameters of going to school, within the parameters of, of trying to be a, a decent son at home and so forth. My first blackout was when I, I had just turned 17. We were on our, our class trip to Washington, D.C., my senior year in high school. And uh, I came to one morning in the rotunda of the Capitol building and just was amazed because the last thing I remembered was sitting in the stairwell drinking out of a bottle of whiskey that several of us had sent a bellboy out in our hotel room, sitting there the night before, and now here all of a sudden I was dressed, functional, Having had been, you know, just coming out of a blackout, I didn't understand. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what caused them. But I thought from that time on, my whole life, that blackouts were normal. They never bothered me. I was sometimes amazed at where I found myself when I'd when I'd come to. But but uh, they never triggered any type of concern on my part. When I was uh, about that same time. I was thrown out of a roadhouse. I don't believe they sold whiskey there. I think it, I think it was just uh, light food, dancing, and uh, where people would go for a good time. And I was thrown out of this place by the owner one night because of my drunken behavior, uh, 16 maybe. And he told me that he wished he knew who my parents were so he could talk to them about my drinking so that they could do something about it. So I guess I was a candidate for this program early on. I know the next year I went away to college, the same thing happened. I was thrown out of a place called the Goody Shop in uh, Durham, North Carolina one night. And the owner said he wished he knew who my parents were so he could talk to them about my drinking. Anyhow, on, you know, the, all through college, I'm grateful that I went to a religious-oriented, at that time, small school, five miles out of the main town, 
<clears throat> where the bus service has stopped running at 10 o'clock at night. You know, I'm grateful that 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 sort of control was put on my drinking early in my life. And that happened all the way through. When I was, after I got out of medical school, again, uh, drinking as much as I could with the tight controls that trying to be a medical student put on. I uh, had been in college and medical school during World War I. And I always had a certain guilt about that. People that I knew went off to war and got killed. And I sat uh, very safely in school during that time. So when the, when the Korean War started, I volunteered for the Army. And I was in the Army, stationed in France, and uh, had one of my typical blackouts. I came to at midnight one night, being dressed down by the commanding general of the, the base section of the United States Army in Europe uh, because of my behavior, drunken behavior, in front of his wife and child. The last thing I remembered was being in a food service line, getting my dinner several hours before. Well, of course, he wanted to know name, rank, and serial number, and, and as always happened to me when I came to out of a blackout, I was really very lucid, and I gave him my name, rank, and serial number. Although it happened, that I was a captain in the medical corps, and I gave him the name of a PFC in the medical service corps, including his enlisted reserve number that I had just made up. So when I woke up the next day, I thought that I was in for a lot of trouble. What happened to me all through my drinking happened that day. The general's aide came by, said the general had had a little too much to drink the night before, and he wasn't quite proud of the way he'd behaved, and so he wanted me to just, if I'd forget the whole thing, he'd forget the whole thing. So I've, I've often wondered, you know, I, I know that there's a penalty for an enlisted man impersonating an officer, but I never found out if there's a penalty for an officer impersonating an enlisted man. The, uh, starting about that time, my cry each night was, I'll quit tomorrow. I, I guess I've said that thousands of times, and always tomorrow, something would happen. Or somebody would say something. Something would go on that I would be justified and take. It boggles my mind that that, that went on for... Well, I got sober when I was 54. So, so that went on for a lot of years. That, that continuously, day after day after day, kidding myself, I would, I would congratulate myself on the one hand because I'd been able to get drunk that day. Uh, my wife didn't, didn't enjoy that at all, so that I, I felt that I had really accomplished something when I was able to get high. Uh, on the other hand, I would tell myself that I'll quit tomorrow. It went on for a long time. Uh, I, the, the part I like best about people's stories is what happened. You know, something happened to all of us to get it. And what happened with me was that a our uh, middle son, who we had had in a treatment facility, Clearbook, uh, several times because of his alcoholism and drug addiction at the age of 15, 
had uh, behaved in such a way that we'd had him admitted to a private psychiatric hospital in Miami. Several geographic cures, as I look back on it, had gotten us to Naples, Florida, where I was practicing surgery. So the nearest place with a lot psychiatric hospital was Miami, and we put him in there. Now, we put him in there because of his behavior, but his behavior, as I look back on it, as my wife and I look back on it, was because of my alcoholism. It was, it was a bad place for him, and we've, we uh, eventually took him out of there and had him seeing a psychiatrist in Naples. We told uh, the psychiatrist, wanted to know what, what our lifestyle was like. Of course, neither one of us, neither my wife nor I, would tell her about my drinking, which was not necessarily apparent to other members of the medical community because I was pretty much a closet drinker. My, our oldest son was in Gainesville, Florida, at the University of Florida as a freshman that time, and my wife went up to see him, drove up to see him, and was telling him about what was going on, and Tom said, Mom, you've got to do something or Dad's going to die. So that gave her the, the permission and the courage to speak to the psychiatrist and tell her what was going on in our home and what was going on in our life. She sent me to another psychiatrist who had the good sense to put me on antabuse, although he didn't, send me to AA. I developed an idiosyncrasy to the antabuse, a jaundiced, uh, had, a, had severe liver dysfunction. So came off the antabuse, and then spent the next year drinking for two weeks, not drinking for a month, drinking for a month, not drinking for two weeks. That sort of thing went on for a year without me telling the psychiatrist about it. And I'm glad that it did as I look back on my life because maybe, maybe I had got rid of my slips during that. At any rate, uh, the last time I went back uh, and started drinking, I told the psychiatrist, he put me in a And I thought what they were going to have to do was open up my head someplace and take a wooden tip screwdriver and go back straight in and, and there was a screw in there that was about a, a quarter turn loose and if they gave that screw a quarter turn strange as that may sound that that seemed to me the sort of thing that I needed uh, I knew that there was something wrong I knew that screw was loose and I didn't know how they were going to be able to turn it well after about two weeks. That's all kind of hazy to me because I was being detoxed during that time. And after about two weeks, one night I complained to somebody about losing my glasses. And they said, oh, we went through all that last night. Didn't you find them today? Well, I didn't remember having gone through a session about losing my glasses before. And Several things happened that I'm not really clear on looking back, but that were, were different, that, that just sort of like that glasses episode. And the next morning, I went, there was a, it was, was a Saturday morning, and I went to go to the AA meeting, which was held at that facility every Saturday morning, and there was no coffee. Well, you know what it's like to go to an AA meeting and there's no coffee. 
problem was that I had been the one that was assigned to make the coffee, and I'd forgotten all about it. So everybody was mad. I was, to put, to say at least, to say the least, was irritable, restless, and disconnected. And I suddenly had an answer to why, although I desperately wanted to stop drinking during that previous year, I'd find myself at the beach with a bottle, or I'd find myself in a bar when I was supposed to be, that I had been treating that feeling. That was the first time I had any clue about it. Anyhow, I knew, I knew how to treat it now, too. I knew there was a bar. This was in West Palm Beach, Florida. I knew two blocks down on Olive Avenue, there was a, a bar that I could go to, and I started off to walk to that bar. When I, I was out on the street, and a car drove up, and a woman got out of the car and introduced herself to me and said that she was from Miami and was supposed to speak at the AA meeting at that facility that morning, and could I tell her where that was? It's kind of a complicated way to get back to this meeting room, so I took her back there and thought, well, I'm here now. I'll just meeting is about to start, I'll sit down and go to this meeting. During the serenity prayer, something, something started to happen. I started to come down out of that irritable, restless, and discontent feeling. I was able to pay attention to this woman's story, who, which was totally different from mine, except it was exactly like mine. <coughs> By the time that meeting was over, a, a total change had occurred in my personality. I went from being negative about things to being positive. It was just a total flip, like black to white. And that kept being enlarged upon through, through the rest of that weekend. And my experience of what happened was a complete psychic change during that weekend that has never gone away. You know, it, it left me on a pink cloud, if you will, that, that has never gone away. I'm so totally grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I don't have to drink. I mean, that is a big deal. I have not, I know it's only 8.30 in the morning, but I have not had to have a drink to that. You know, that is a big... I went home, got a sponsor, did the, the work the steps uh, eventually, one way or another, and, and remained grateful to this day to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'm going to stop talking about alcohol now. Part, part of the reason that, that I had wanted to stop drinking desperately during that year before is that alcohol had stopped working. I didn't, I didn't get the buzz. I didn't get the good feeling. I got nothing but the remorse. I got nothing but, but the hangover. Alcohol had stopped working. But sometime during that time, I had found what did work. Uh, women other than my wife. Uh, provided the, the fear and the excitement and the danger and the joy and it worked. 
They told me in uh, treatment that that behavior would go away. Once I stopped drinking, got sober, worked the program, that that behavior would go away. But I was totally surprised. To off and on, not continuously, but, but still as a, still, always, with that hidden life back here, the same as I'd had with the alcohol. As I hid the alcohol, so I hid this behavior. And, and I, I don't really enjoy talking about this because usually my wife is present in the room. She, she slept in this morning, but usually she's present. And I don't like to rehash this stuff, but I do it because you know, I, don't, I don't think it's uncommon. And I throw it out as part of my service. That went on for, that went on. I didn't drink. I don't know why I didn't drink. My guess is because I did a very thorough fourth and fifth step and addressed all this behavior in the step, but never did stop it. It went on for, for uh, 12 years. I was 12 years sober, and I had a bottom worse than anything I ever hit from alcohol. Uh, the latest woman that I'd been involved with, uh, put in a complaint against my, my license to the uh, state medical board. Luckily, at that time in Florida, was a man named Roger Getz, who, who uh, I told about the situation, and he sent me off to, to a treatment center for sexual addiction. I went through five weeks there. They, dis they recommended that I give up my license, 65, 66, they recommended I give up my license, and I didn't want to, so then they recommended that I go to Talbot to uh, sort of prepare to get back into the mainstream of life, which I did, which I'm very grateful for. Went back and uh, did the things I needed to do, thought the thoughts I needed to think, with that, just like with alcoholism. And for the last 11 years, I'm uh, very grateful to say that I've been clean and sober. Most grateful to be able to participate wholeheartedly, have nothing to hide. What I am is what I'm able to put right out here and uh, be able to partake in what I, what I think of as the majesty of sobriety. It just is a magical, majestic, situation to be in where I don't have to drink every day and I don't have to do anything else that tears down my character either. Thank you. Our next speaker is George C. from Oklahoma City here. Thank you. I'm George and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning, everybody. Well, Gene, you and I have something in common. I went into treatment when I was 54 years old. <clears throat> Takes some of us longer than others to get here. You know, I was born right during the Depression and had a loving mother and father. And my mother died August the 10th, which is today, 1942, just before I was 11 years old. And uh, from that, something happened <clears throat> in that my father remarried about 15 months later, 14, something like that. 
and this lady was a registered nurse and never had any kids and there I had two sisters and she was horrible and I developed a hate for her that I carried even after she died I hated her and <clears throat> I finally worked through that when I did my uh, fourth and fifth step and worked on that when I was in treatment writing her a letter apologizing and and getting right but I had to have an escape from that and I turned to alcohol and my mother and her family there was no alcoholism my father was not an alcoholic but his sister and his half-sister were so I guess I inherited the gene if we inherit that you know but I can remember the uh, first time I drank, I got drunk. And that's when I was about 13, maybe at Christmas. <clears throat> when I was 13, I went to this friend's house who was a classmate of mine. And his father always made eggnog on Christmas. For the other whole family, I was the only outsider. And he and I got back to sneaking eggnog and we both got drunk. And that pattern continued when I could drink. <clears throat> In those days, there wasn't much money available, and I couldn't afford it very often. But when I could scrape something together, we'd go to the bootlegger, Oklahoma was dry at that time, and uh, get a pint of liquor and split it. I remember one time we went to this con what's like these convenience stores nowadays, only it was out in the country, and uh, three of us went out there, and one of us distracted the proprietor, and the other two stole a bunch of beer, cases of beer, not six-packs, but ba uh, cases. And we hid those in a bar ditch, and then we'd go out and, and fish them out and drink them every now and then, you know. Just crazy things like that. So I got off to... Uh, <coughs> medical school, I mean to University of Oklahoma, and uh, the same pattern continued. When I could drink, I just did it to excess. It wasn't very often, but every time I did, I just got drunk. And I played football for University of Oklahoma, and I was on their national championship team in 1950 when we were national champions for the first time. And when we traveled... Most of the guys took a dop kit. I took a suitcase. It was every Friday night, and we were in Iowa or Nebraska or Texas or somewhere on a road trip. I went to the liquor store, and I'd get about four-fifths of liquor. And I'd take them back, and I'd bootleg three of them and keep one for myself. <coughs> and so that way I made a little money and got, got to get drunk again, you know. So then I got out of there and went on to medical school. But just before I went to medical school, I got married. And my wife was a teetotaler and didn't like me drinking. So I had to sneak around and drink, you know, at parties and things when I could. And uh, <clears throat> I finally got to where I could keep a bottle, one bottle of liquor in the house. And I'd 
you'll have a drink maybe once a week or twice a week or something like that. All the time wanting to have more. The desire was there, I'll tell you that for sure. And <clears throat> that's the way it went through medical school. We had a son at that time. And then I went in the Army for three years. Went to the paratroopers so we wouldn't have to go to Korea. And then went to flight surgeon school. And in the Army, the officers' clubs are wonderful. I don't know if you've ever been in the Army or not, but lots of booze and it's cheap. And I could sneak over there after work and have some drinks, or sometimes I'd have dinner parties and what have you for the commanding general. Go over and seemed like I got drunk quite often. And <clears throat> my wife would get after me, and I'd say, oh, oh, you know. No, don't worry about it, you know. It'd always be good the next day I'd get up and go to work, be just bright and bushy-tailed and everything. It never affected my work in any way. And after the Army, I went to residency. <coughs> and uh, being an alcoholic, we are obsessive perfectionists, as Doug Talbot was talking about yesterday morning. So what do I do? I go into ophthalmology. Now, you've got to be obsessive and you've got to be a perfectionist to operate on eyeballs. Because they're pretty damn tiny and it's pretty delicate work. But I did very well there and I didn't do much drinking there except when we had the dinner parties a couple of times a year. At home, I rarely drank. And I was so busy, you know, that the compulsion didn't bother me that much because I was so busy working all day, 12 hours a day a lot of times, and reading the literature at night and trying to keep up. So didn't have much problem then. But then when I got into private practice July the 1st of 1964, I thought, boy, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to have plenty of money here one of these days, and I'm going to have whiskey because I want to drink. So that's what I did. <clears throat> But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't getting drunk every day or anything like that. It was just kind of a binge type deal. Just every time I could, I did. And that went on for several years, and it started getting worse. And I'd always been a duck hunter and a quail hunter when I was growing up, and I became an avid quail hunter. Because in Oklahoma in those days, you could hunt on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. The only days you could hunt. So I'd go every Thursday and every Saturday. Way out in western Oklahoma, I'd always go with somebody you never went by yourself. And I'd get drunk every time I went. And I couldn't drive home. They had, whoever was with me had to drive home. And that went on for a long, long time. And then one day, it was a Saturday after quail season, I was over at a friend's store who had a men's clothing store here. And we had been betting on the NCAA basketball, and we were watching the games. And he happened to have a fifth of scotch in his back room, so we went back there, and we killed that that afternoon. I went stumbling home and uh, slurring and everything. My wife got after me, and I said, I just had two drinks. Typical alcoholic, two drinks, two drinks, you know. <clears throat> so it kept getting worse, and... At home, 
mainly because of my drinking. And uh, like they were talking about yesterday morning in the family disease in the other room, the main thing that happens in a marriage to break up a marriage is lack of communication. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. And so finally, after 25 years, I walked out of that marriage on July the 5th. July the 4th had been a holiday. I left that morning with the clothes on my back, and I never went back. Never. I'm not proud of that. It's just, that's just what happened. <clears throat> so anyway, I found a lady who was kind of like me. She liked to drink a little bit, and she liked to get intimate. And so we got married 14 months later. <clears throat> and we had a great time. This was in 1979 and 80, along in there. I don't know if you remember the uh, oil boom in the United States, which Oklahoma was kind of the center of it, western Oklahoma, with all the deep gas wells and everything. But she had some property out there her folks did, and she had some minerals, and we participated in a couple of wells, which came in as barn burners, as we call them. So we had extra money. We had that money plus the uh, money that I had made in my practice. I was still practicing, still am, as a matter of fact. And we had a great time. We joined the Republican Eagles, which is a very kind of an expensive organization to go to. Went to Washington, D.C., saw, saw President Reagan, had dinner with him and lunch and all this stuff, you know. And that was all very superficial. But at these luncheons in Washington, these meetings, they had cocktails before lunch. And they'd have cocktails before dinner. And you'd go to the bar in between and sneak a drink then if you want to, or have a drink. <coughs> And I thought that was just great fun. I was just having a great time, you know. Wasn't anything bothering me, you know. I just thought it was all wonderful. But I kept getting drunk all the time. And <clears throat> one night I came home after being out gambling and drinking. And I couldn't drive my car home. I was so drunk. I couldn't even walk. Harley. And this guy... Helped me up the door and got the door open and shoved me in, and I fell down against the grandfather clock, which was there in the hall. And I can still hear that clock chiming. Boy, it was chiming like hell. <coughs> and my my wife didn't appreciate that very much. So she was really pissed off the next day. So I had a friend who'd, whose mother was an alcoholic who had attended Alcoholics Anonymous, and he'd gone to some meetings, didn't have Al-Anon in those days, years and years ago. So I knew a little bit, so I said, I'm going to AA. I'm going Saturday morning. This was Friday, I think. So I went to AA that Saturday morning to the men's meeting, the Western Club, and I walked in, and here's Dr. Mark C., who was a very big supporter of this program, is now passed on, who I had worked with between my internship and 
and the army and between the army and residency. And uh, after that meeting, I didn't hear a thing at the meeting, by the way. Didn't hear a damn thing. I didn't want to hear anything. I wasn't there for me. And it didn't work. But after the meeting, Dr. Mark came over to my house and was sitting in his car. He followed me home. Talked for about an hour. He said, George said, you're an alcoholic. I said, I don't think so. I said, I've got a little drinking problem, but I'm not an alcoholic. And he said, well, you are too. And he gave me a big book. So I took that big book and went in the house and hid it in the bedroom where nobody could see it. No company could see it. I didn't want to see it coming in the front room or in the front part of the house. So I went to a few meetings and things kind of smoothed over, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I quit going to AA and they didn't do any good. And things kind of smoothed over at the house and got back in good graces. So went on and <clears throat> living this way and and then my wife got sick. And she was sick for about five months and finally died after we'd been married about five years. And <clears throat> I was really resentful about that. I cussed God and blamed him for this. I was brought up in the Baptist church and the thing in those days was once saved, always saved. But once saved, if you sin, you're going to hell. If you do this, you're going to hell. If you do this, you're going to hell. That was the, the teachings in those days. And I was mad at God for all these things that happened to me. So after the funeral was over and the company left and the things settled down, I pulled the drapes in the house. at had a great big house. And... I left those drapes pulled from then on. And I sat there and I drank. And I drank. And I drank. It got to where I got up in the morning and had a screwdriver before I brushed my teeth. And then I go to work and see patients all day. <clears throat> and drink at noon. And after work drink. It got so bad, you know, I finally realized something was not right. The thing, the thing that, two things that I learned in medical school about alcoholism. Number one is if you don't eat meat, you're going to get cirrhosis. So I ate meat every day. At least once a day I ate meat. I thought that'll keep me from getting cirrhosis. I knew I was drinking too much. The other thing I learned about addiction was how bad drugs were. They warned us, said, don't ever try this, you'll get addicted, you'll become addicted right away. And so I never did mess with drugs at all, never. But uh, they didn't tell us about alcoholism doing the same damn thing, you know. I think they do, do a little different approach in medical school nowadays, which, which is good. And I'm glad they do. <coughs> But, you know, I finally realized I had a problem one time when I bought two cases of vodka, which were the big jugs, half gallons or a little less. And 14 days later, I was on the last jug. And I took, took those bottles and in the cases out to the trash, and I stood there and I said, George, you got a drinking problem. But I wasn't going to be an alcoholic. I just had a drinking problem, you know. 
Well, push came to shove and happened to have a drink one morning and uh, went to the hospital and operated and uh, something went bad with the anesthetic. Anyway, the patient did all right finally, but it was a kind of a tragic thing to happen and everybody's uptight and one guy, the anesthesiologist, told the administrator of the hospital he could smell alcohol on my breath. I didn't think he could smell vodka. I couldn't smell because I had my nose broken seven times playing football. This was your face mask in those days. And I couldn't smell anything. I didn't think you could smell it. I could smell whiskey or scotch. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, I was intervened on by the hospital administrator, this anesthesiologist, and three other doctors. And I was told to go see Daryl Smith to give him a call. He gave me his phone number. I said, who's that? He said, he's the director of the Impaired Physicians Committee. I didn't know what the hell that meant at that time, you know. So anyway, I called him and I went out to their meeting, the Caduceus meeting, which you have every Monday night, still do. And uh, he knew about me through Mark C. and some other people. And he was just waiting for me to come. You know. So we get in there and he has me read how it works. I was so damn scared and upset and everything, I could hardly read that thing. <clears throat> but I struggled through it, and then we we talked and visited and everything, and he told me about treatment, and he thought I might ought to go to treatment. So I plea bargained with him. I said, well, <clears throat> and uh, quit drinking and, and do whatever I need to do and see if I can do this without going to treatment. Well, as you know, that didn't work. Matter of fact, one evening I had a drink, one drink before dinner, and then I went to an AA meeting at this house where Mrs. Delaney was there. I don't know if you all know of her from New Jersey, but uh, she was there and she said, somebody in here has been drinking. <laughs> so she turned me into Dr. Mark. <clears throat> and Daryl says, you're going to treatment. <laughs> So I went for evaluation. I said, I'll go for the evaluation. That's what I'll do. <clears throat> so I agreed to that, and I flew to Atlanta and uh, was interviewed by about five or six different people on the staff down there. One of them happened to be Jim Weigel. And uh, when I got to talking to him, I hadn't said 100 words, maybe not even 50 words. He said, George, you need to be here. And that just shocked me. But anyway, I agreed to go to treatment, but I did have a commitment here about 10 days later. I had to come back for which I did. And I didn't drink much in the meantime, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, <clears throat> didn't get drunk. <clears throat> and I finally went back to treatment. Well, on the way to treatment, I had two double martinis on the way. I, that was pretty good compared to a lot of guys that showed up down there. Most of them were high or drunk or crazy as hell when they got there, you know. So my primary physician came over to see me that night and, and uh, said, when did you have your last drink? And I said, oh, Thursday evening with my girlfriend. Had a half a glass of wine. I wasn't honest yet. Wasn't getting honest yet. <laughs> so we started. I started the treatment, you know. And about uh, oh, eight or ten days later, 
I cornered Jim Weigel. I said, Jim, I said, I need to see a private psychiatrist and I'll pay him out of my own pocket because I don't know what, I'm not getting this. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what this program is, you know, and working the program. I didn't understand that. He said, stick around. I said, you will. I said, you don't need to go see a psychiatrist. <clears throat> so sure enough, about 15 days into treatment, just before noon, we had a session, a small group session before noon, and each person had to tell their story. So I got, <clears throat> it was my day, I wrote all this stuff out and everything and read it to the group, and we're in a circle of chairs, about 14 people. I read my story, and, and she had to go around to each guy or gal on a roller chair, you rolled around this thing and hold them by the hand, look in their eye, and they're supposed to give you feedback. But boy, all of them thought is wonderful, my story. Just great, you know. None of them had much to say, you know, negative. I get to the counselor. He said, George, that's the biggest bunch of bullshit I've heard. He said, I don't see you even being in treatment. And this was just before noon. Now, there's the end of the session. Something hit me. I don't know what. I went to my room. We had an hour and a half for lunch. Didn't eat lunch. I got in my room and got on my knees and prayed and cried for an hour and a half. I don't know what it was or why it was except the grace of God. But from then on, I was in treatment. And I got started getting honest. And spent about four months in Atlanta. I finally did my fourth and fifth step, which I've never had to repeat. I got that honest. I still say I don't need to repeat it. A lot of people do, and that's fine. But then uh, when I went home, I got home on a Sunday, and I had a meeting in my house on Sunday night. A bunch of my friends who I met and knew, and some of their friends came over. But that day, I pulled those drapes open. Those drapes had been closed for 14 months or whatever it was, you know. Well, by then, it was about 18 months. I opened those drapes, and they haven't been closed since, even though I don't live in that house anymore. <clears throat> and then I, I kept going. To, I was going to my 90 and 90, you know. In fact, in November, I got home in October. In November, I was elected chairman of the Early Birds, which meets at 630 in the morning, and one Wednesday afternoon, I'd sold my house. I hadn't moved yet, so I had the lady from the office over helping me, and we were packing things up, getting ready to move. And uh, back in this cabinet in the den, she said, doctor said, uh, here's a bottle. It was a flask, which I'd carried to football games and hunting and things like that, you know, carrying a half pint of vodka. You know, and all, ever since I went to treatment, I wondered, do I like the taste of that vodka or was it something else? I hadn't figured out it was the effect yet, I don't think. But uh, I took that into the kitchen and I took a little sip of it and washed, swirled it around my mouth and 
God, it tasted awful. I spit it out in the sink and washed my mouth out and dumped that thing out. Now, this was Tuesday afternoon. The next afternoon, uh, she found this carrying case, which held two fifths or two quarts that I'd had in the trunk of my car. I always had whiskey in the trunk of my car. Carried ice during the summer, just, just in case, you know. <clears throat> but anyway, she found that, and there was a half a bottle of vodka in there. So I took that whole case out to the trash and put it in the trash. And the next morning, the trash men came and took the trash away. And that afternoon, I had the damnedest desire to drink that I've ever had. And I went out there to see if the trash men had come yet. And they had, thank God. And I was just going crazy. But I'd had enough tools that I called my sponsor and told him. This is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, by then, 4.30. And he said, get your butt over to 5.30 meeting and tell them about what happened. So I did. And the next morning I did the same thing at the early bird meeting. Both of those meetings wound up with people sharing about how they almost drank over something after they'd gotten sober. It was really a great experience to go through that. <clears throat> Since that day, I have not had the desire to drink, ever. My wife and I go to Las Vegas every now and then. By the way, we got married on the AA campus. They say, don't do that. But I was... Uh, about 14 months sober when we got married. She now has over 27 years of sobriety. I have over 15. So we've done very well for the last 13, almost 14 years. But we go to Las Vegas now and then. I went out there one time, and I like to play blackjack or play the slots. And, of course, the free drinks, you know, they come around, and I said, I want a glass of tonic water. All I wanted. Well, one time they brought me a vodka and tonic. And, of course, I couldn't smell or anything. I took a little sip and said, this tastes strange. And I, I spit it out on the floor right in there in the gambling hall. And I cut, got that gal over. I said, here, you bring me a tonic water and take this back. Don't you ever bring me another damn tonic uh, vodka and tonic. So... <clears throat> It's been a, a joyous ride for me. And the thing that, the one thing that really turned me around when I was in treatment was I read and understood and accepted finally what Paul O. says on page 479 of our big book. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens by mistake in God's world. And... All the blaming I did for all the pat, you know, the stepmother and everything else, you know, that's the way it's supposed to have been. And I was where I was supposed to be. When I first came to AA to, for me, you know, I walked in and here's John. We had a guy named uh, Marion. He was an old white-headed gentleman who didn't even, had never been to school or anything, 
But he got up and recited the preamble. And then here's John E. over here, recites how it works. I thought, oh my God, you've got to memorize all this stuff. <laughs> I haven't memorized it yet. When someone asked me how it works, you know, I say it works very well. Keep coming back. Thank you very much. Thank you, George. This is a we program. 1980, I ended up at a, a clubhouse after leaving the hospital, and there's a lady there, there's a lot of people there that knew me and knew my wife, and anyway, our next speaker is one of those people, and we've been down this journey of seeing each other on and off through these years, and so, Georgia. Hi, everybody. My name's Georgia, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. It's really great to be here. Um, I first got sober in Oklahoma City in January of 1982, and I did the worst of my drinking right here in this town. I have to tell you, I remember virtually nothing about the city. It's like a brand new experience being here, uh, except for the people. I had the opportunity to talk last year at IDAA and tell my story, so what I'm going to do this time is talk a little bit about what John asked me to talk about, which has been the spiritual journey that I've undergone as, as a result of my disease and also as a result of recovery, and also talk a little bit about IDAA also. Um, I grew up in a small town in northern Ohio. Uh, my whole family is Lutheran, and so my first memories of church and spiritual experiences are of this beautiful uh, Lutheran church in my little town on Lake Erie. And this church is a, is a granite church, and in the inside it's got all this elaborate woodwork and um, beautiful blue paint, and it really resembles an Italian cathedral more than a Lutheran church. Um, and th those are my memories of sitting in that church on Sunday with my grandmother and feeling an enormous amount of peace. Uh, there's a lot about uh, being a Lutheran that's fairly aloof and probably kind of chilly, but that suited me just fine. It had a lot of ritual and a lot of beauty to it. So throughout my life, I've carried some very warm memories of the fact that God can be found in churches and he's there and he's accessible. Um, as I grew up, um, I have this wonderful Israeli psychiatrist now, and she has this whole clutch of psychiatric explanations for why I am the person that I am. I used to think I was the only expert on Georgia Thomas, and now I've discovered that I don't know very much about me at all, and in fact, my psychiatrist, my husband, and particularly my teenager are much more well-versed about who I am than I am myself. Uh, but she pointed out to me that I grew up really a child with almost pathological shyness and a lot of social phobias. My mom tells the story about um, my cousin and I, who really grew up together at five or six years of age, sitting on the sofa in my grandmother's house, both of us on either ends of the sofa, so shy that we couldn't say a word to each other, and my mother and her cousin at the kitchen table trying to figure out what they were going to do with them. And as I grew up, uh, it turned out that Working hard in school was one of the antidotes to making me feel better. I remained very shy, having a lot of difficulty with social. Um, my dad's a retired mechanical engineer, uh, a functional alcoholic, and there was a lot of danger and a lot of anxiety in my home. Um, I realized once I began to look backward at my childhood memories that I have no memory of what happened in my house half at night. 
because my um, father did a lot of drinking before dinner and after dinner, and, and those memories are just gone. Uh, so I spent a lot of time hiding out, um, hoping that things would get better, and in particular trying to pretend that everything was already okay. Um, we didn't talk a lot in my house, and the idea of trying to explain to someone how I really felt um, didn't compute at all. I had my first experience with drugs when I was about eight or nine years old when I fiddled for a urinary tract infection and got given some codeine. And I can still, I can remember everything about it. I can remember the way the room smelled even and how wonderful I felt with those drugs. And I was probably lost in my disease from that point. I had some interruptions in my um, school life in adolescence because periodically I would become too frightened to go to school. and. I spent one semester out of school at the beginning of high school because I just was too terrified to walk through the doors of school. Um, and my parents just kind of let me go and let me stay at home, and then I'd get a little better and I'd go back to school. I was intent on medicine, and that was all I had. Um, I finally had my first experience with alcohol when I was in college. Uh, it was wonderful. I had finally enough to drink so that I could feel okay and discovered that alcohol really made me feel okay. And the whole, the whole story of my alcoholism and drug addiction is just chasing that one feeling of never feeling a part of, never okay, and then temporarily all right while I was drinking. And my story in college and in medical school is a lot like Dr. Bob's. I would vacillate from a year where I would overperform and do brilliantly, and then something would happen, and I'd have some contact with alcohol in college. Or when I was in med school, I was old enough to buy alcohol. And then I'd crater again, and you know the school system spent a lot of time trying to figure out why I was so erratic. Um, I uh, encountered uh, enough drugs to, to make them useful to me when I was in med school. Um, I went, uh, went through the first year of med school almost flunking out, and then uh, met a group of people who were studying all the time. Um, met a really unpleasant, abusive guy that I studied with that I finally married and did real well in med school. Um, he was in the Air Force, so we ended up in San Antonio residency and had, again, some of those erratic years where I was intern of the year the first year and then cratered during residency training when I discovered I could divert IV Demerol. Um, I went to a fellowship in oncology back in Ohio, met my... Um, met Lee there and got married. One of his big attractions for me was that he had this healthy family. <laughs> I thought his family was healthy. They were a little healthier than mine. And I had these visions that if I married someone who was pretty stable, I would be okay. We ended up in Oklahoma City and the last years of my drinking were, were just awful. Um, I had stopped going to church. I, I wasn't, didn't have any kind of conscious contact. And then finally enough terrible things happened to me. Um, I wound up in a psych hospital after a suicide attempt, and they finally decided that I might have a drinking problem. And so one night, this little anesthesiologist picked me up, and I went to the um, I went to the the uh, Western Club here in Oakland, and went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it took me a while to get sober, but finally, um, in January of 1982, I had my last drunk. Um, I sat in the same place on my sofa where I always sat planning another suicide attempt and major between wanting to die and drinking alcohol. Went back to the club, still drunk. By that time, I was going to drunk to meetings all the time. It's, I, for, for any of you who have tolerated a drunk in meetings, please remember that you really are saving lives because they didn't kick me out. 
And when I went back to that meeting and said, there's something wrong with me, um, they said, you're in the right place. And wonderful things began to happen to me. I was with John. I was with Daryl and Paul. Um, those four months that I spent here in Oklahoma City with a good sponsor made an enormous difference to me. And one of the first things that started to work for me in the program was daily prayer. Roberta insisted that I get down on my knees and pray every for years. And I was convinced I was going to be struck dead because it was so hypocritical, because I did not believe. But I did it anyway, and finally one day I felt better, and it was a miracle. I can still remember almost where I was in my house. We moved to Houston when I was about six months sober, and I had um, a lot of good years in Alcoholics Anonymous then. I went to meetings all the time. I got my license back. One of the best things about IDAA was by the time I got sober in Oklahoma City, I'd lost my license twice, and at that time, that was unheard of. And what the group in Oklahoma City told me was that in all their experience, there was only one doctor like me. And that doctor's name was Tony, and he was someplace on the East Coast. But they said there was one other doctor in the world that had lost their license twice, and maybe I had a chance. And eventually, I had the opportunity to meet Tony and understand that, uh, yes, we had the same disease. Um, I talked about my relapse last year, and all I can tell you is that I think uh, the, the compulsive process of busyness in medicine is a disease in itself. And, I was uh, incompletely informed, really, about my other compulsions. I never went to treatment. You know, I crawled through the doors of Alcohol Anonymous, and I probably really needed treatment. But what happened to me kind of slowly was I got busier and busier at work, and uh, we adopted my daughter, and um, I really thought my life was full. But what was happening was I was substituting a lot of things that made me look good and feel good for what I really needed to do. So eventually, very, very slowly, I started to use um, drugs again, uh, at first about once a year in connection with an illness, and then gradually more often. Um, and I wasn't really praying. You know, I, was, I went through what I called dry periods, which meant that I couldn't find the time to pray. Uh, but I didn't miss it, you see, because I was so busy. I had this busy life, and um, I was trying to repair my marriage, and I had a full-time job, and I went back to school, and I had this baby, and uh, it looked good from the outside. And the reason I try to stay so closely tied into the people who love me now in these meetings is because I really did not know what was happening to me. Um, and then finally, we adopted my little boy in um, August of 1990, and I've talked a lot about him in these meetings. He turned out to be very ill with congenital toxoplasma, um, a lot of eye disease, a lot of brain disease, and my husband and my daughter and I went through an awful period for about two or three years when this child was critically ill all the time. Lots of neurosurgical procedures. Um, I couldn't believe that this had happened to me, that I had gone from being okay to having this catastrophic thing wrong, and I stopped. I stopped making conscious contact. I prayed occasionally for strength, particularly when I do something like cry in the grocery store. But I stopped praying and I stopped talking because it was so painful to me that I didn't see how I could even explain to people how I felt. And um, things actually, even as this child got better, things got worse for me because um, as I stopped talking, I began to not be able to talk. And for those of you who've never experienced a relapse, what happens is a veil comes down. It's like, it's like looking through a plexiglass shield at the rest of your life. And I was unable to talk about how. So 
So a lot of things happened to me, and slowly, slowly, I began to use more and more. One of the best things that happened during that interval, though, was that I never stopped going to meetings. I'm sure I don't hold, hold the world's record for how many years I went to meetings and used intermittently, but it was a long time. Uh, but the contact with the people who cared about me was really a lifeline for me, even when things were very... Um, so my new spiritual experience happened as a result of having the privilege and the honor of being shipped off to Atlanta. And like other people who've talked, um, when I got to Atlanta, my chief desire was to work myself into this actually mythical six-week track that Dr. Talbot had, which is only for people who drank a little bit, never used drugs, and never relapsed. But they don't tell you that when they get you there because, frankly, they need you there. Uh, so I thought I was going to qualify for the six-week program. And I spent about two weeks acting as healthy as possible. God only knows what that really looked like. Um, and I couldn't figure out why, why the treatment team was so unresponsive to me. Uh, and then finally they called me in and they said that I was really sick and that indeed I did not qualify for the six-week program. <laughs> and I was going to be there a long time. Uh, this was summer, it was September, it was 80 degrees outside, and they told me to call my husband and have him send my winter things. And I spent a whole day crying, and I, f I felt like my life was over. My life had actually ended in many ways before I got to Atlanta because I had lost my license again, and a lot of bad things were happening to me. But I went through this period at, in Atlanta where I just felt like my life was over, and I still couldn't pray. And they didn't help me in Atlanta. They just listened to me and watched me. And finally, um, my primary therapist said, um, why do you think you relapsed? Well, in a treatment, every question is a trick question, and you never have the answer. And I knew the answer was, I have no idea. So I said that, and she said, you relapsed because you failed to keep sobriety as the most important in your life. And I thought that was so profound and so complex. And I said, I feel so terrible, I'm never going to get better. And she said, maybe. You know, you might be beyond human aid. Maybe there's a message there for you. And I still didn't get it. And so finally she said, how many times, how are you praying? And I said, I'm not. So I started to pray again, sitting on one of those little, ba little uh, backyard balconies in Atlanta. Um, by this time it was late October and it was cold. So I'd go out, go out early in the morning wrapped in a quilt. And um, one of the miracles of my recovery is that for a second time, daily prayer began to work for me, just like it worked the first time. And in having prayer begin to work again, I began to remember again that this program worked. The most frightening thing about relapse is that I could not remember, even with the years of, of great sobriety that I had, I couldn't remember how the program worked. I would never have gotten well on my own. I needed every second of treatment. So I began to pray again, and I got that kind of temporary relief that daily prayer um, gave me the first time. So I began over again. Um, what I do right now with my uh, spiritual experiences is I pray and meditate every morning. Um, I look at the same oak tree on my backyard um, every day, um, week in and week out, year in the same place. Sometimes my little boy comes out with me. Uh, when I first got back to Houston, um, things were really bad. My family was so angry at me. My teenager was wild, and my husband was wild, and it was, it was awful. It was really awful. And um, another spiritual experience that I had was I went to my, the club that I had been going to for almost 20 years and went to a meeting one night that had turned out to 
be dying because my club is always dying. You know, there there there's always meetings that are that are waning away. And I went to a meeting where there was only one other person there, and so we had a little meeting, and all this man did was um, talk to me about God consciousness and the need for prayer. And he said I had to pray all the time in my own life, and that the more I prayed, the better things would get. And he just he said over and over again like a mantra. Prayer changes conditions. And I left thinking that maybe God had actually talked to me through this man. And then I began to pray throughout the day and to really look for opportunities to stay quiet or mindful, uh, like Dr. Angers talked yesterday, and really try to reach out. I'm not sure that's conscious contact yet, but it is a willingness to listen that I never had before. And I didn't have the first time around in sobriety either. And as a consequence of that, Wonderful things happened to me and able to maintain that kind of calm. At almost three years of sobriety this time around, a lot of things are much better for me. I'm still uh, learning a lot of lessons, uh, mostly in my own life. Uh, at the moment, it feels to me like my 16-year-old is really the person who is teaching me the most lessons, both about myself and about what I need to do to maintain serenity and conscious calm. When I left Atlanta, they told me that you relapse over the things in your life that you haven't taken care of, and I had a lot of wreckage in my own family um, to work on, and I'm still working on that. On a Throughout my recovery, coming to these meetings has been a cornerstone of what I've done, and I have always been able to pick up the phone and call people. And even though there have been years when John and I only talk at these meetings, uh, I can always call him. Um, and I take direction now. They told me in Atlanta, what a concept, that if I had just followed the rules, I wouldn't have relapsed. And I thought that was so profound. You're so screwed up when you get there. It, uh, sometimes I think I understand what happened in treatment, and other times I think I was so impaired that I actually have no idea what happened in treatment. I only have my memories. But they told me that if I would just follow the rules, I would be okay. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I can remember, I don't know, 15 years ago that John told me that he went to a meeting every day. And I really believe in daily or almost daily meetings. It makes um, When I came, I wanted to go see the, the memorial to the bombing. And one of my friends is here from Houston, Dick C. And yesterday, I saw him outside, and he told me he went to the memorial early in the morning. And he told me that he walked down those steps um, and got himself spiritually for the memorial. So what I did, because I take direction now, is I went out this morning. It's really an amazing experience. I was all by myself, and the experience of standing by that pool and feeling. And um, we had, my husband and I had talked about going during the day, and I think too, but I probably would never ha have had that unique experience had I not listened to Dick and done what I was told. So. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. And